Welcome back to the Policy Viz podcast. I'm your host, John Schwabish. On this week's episode, we are going to talk about doing good with data, really, is what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how we can improve the world uh, using data. And to help me do so, very excited to have my uh, good friend on, Michael Brenner, who is the head of design at Data for Change in London. Michael, how are you? Good to talk to you. What's going on? Thanks, <laughs> Thanks John. Um, it's great to be here and to talk to you as well. Um, yeah, things are well. Um, and yeah, it's been uh, it's been some time since we've uh, spoken in person. But um, yeah. yeah, thanks for having me on. And um, shall we jump into it? Yeah, let's jump. Well, yeah. first, let's give people context because um, we met at the Malofier conference in 2017, or Malofiage. It's unclear. Yeah, it's so unclear. How to pronounce? It's so unclear. <laughs> uh, we were on the uh, jury together doing the interactive pieces with on a flag from Marshall Project and Javier Theracina from Vox. And Sarah Slobin was there, although she was on the other jury. And um, we, uh, I'd say we had a pretty good time. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, 900 projects in, what was it, two days? It's like two quite, days. Uh, quite a trek. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, and at the time, you were doing studio work in London, and now you've moved over to Data for Change. So maybe you can give folks a, a quick uh, Brenner bio um, <laughs> and let us know where you've come from and, and where you are now. Yeah, so quick kind of background. Um, I'm classically trained as a graphic designer, received a BA from the Savannah College of Art and Design back in 2005. And had worked in New York for quite some time in myriad studios doing mostly editorial and exhibition work. And then started uh, working with a small studio in Brooklyn called Management Design, where I kind of fell into the infographic and data visualization realm at the time. Um, this was still when things were mostly done by hand, pre-raw, pre um, a lot of the programs. And even, I think... I'll have to fact check this, but even before the New York Times had their whiz bang team, you're doing a lot of op eds for them on the Iraq and Afghanistan war, doing these isotype um, pieces for them about um, soldiers and civilian deaths, um, yeah, in the conflict at the time. And then moved to the Netherlands, had a small studio there, then moved to London, where I was on the team at Beyond Words for uh, two and a half, almost three years, and then just recently moved to Data for Change. Nice. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Data for Change. How many people do you have there, and, and what's the what's the mission? So right now, we are currently three uh, people. It's uh, Stina Bakker, who is head of content, and Bronwyn Robertson, who is uh, head of data, and myself, who's head of design. And the three of us right now are... You know, we're still trying to figure out what data for change is and where it's going to go because it's just recently um, incorporated as a non-for-profit. But right now at its core, uh, data for change is a five-day workshop that brings together creative talent and CSOs from around the world in a unique location and works with their original bespoke data to create data-driven advocacy campaigns. In the yeah, in the hopes of impacting change for those affected people that the CSOs are working with, and right. sorry, CSOs are civil society organizations. You'll hear me say that a lot. Yeah, the top. <laughs> we got all we got all the all the abbreviations. So, yeah. um, 
so let's start with where you've gone so far, because it's not like you're roaming around the UK doing this. This is these are countries in Africa and some other places. Um, and then maybe you can paint a picture for us of, of how a five day workshop works for this sort of work. Well, sure. So since its inception in 2014, to date, we've done seven workshops and we've worked with a total of uh, 27 civil society organizations and 65 human rights activists. Um, we've received over 1,032 applications, and, and in that time, we've put together 141 database professionals. Um, and it's taken place primarily right now in the MENA region, which is the Middle East and North Africa. We've done uh, a couple of workshops in Beirut. Uh, we just recently finished one in the modern Jordan, and we've also um, held two workshops in Kampala. And so basically, what Data for Change is, is this five-day workshop, and participants come together from a selected body of talent, because we have an open call for it. And so we put together data journalists, we put together researchers, we put together developers, designers, and uh, team leaders to basically come together and work with these original data sets to find key messages and ideas from specific uh, civil society organizations to help promote their causes. And basically to give the civil society organizations a chance to work with creative teams that they may not normally have access to, to be able to walk away with a very high level and rendered prototype uh, at the end of the five days. And then basically what we do is um, depending on where the projects are, depending on the involvement of the team and how enthusiastic they are about it, um, we'll find further funding to fully realize those projects and launch them um, into the world. So these are CSOs who they have a project that they want to start. They don't have the teams or the skill sets to do it. And so they apply to Data for Change. And, and you guys are convening all the experts, both in terms of the technology and the subject matters, to bring folks together to help build these websites or tools or what have you. Uh, correct. And uh, I think one of the, the key um, benefits of uh, Data for Change is that we also we, we bring together international talent and local talent in region mm-hmm. so that we have um, perspectives from all various areas so that we can really craft um, and also yeah, craft very sensitive and you know, um, impactful uh, projects. So it's not... Um, it's not just people coming together and say, oh, we should do this. It's definitely very considered in terms of what needs to be done. And one of the great things about the workshop is, is that all egos are really left at the airport. And everybody comes willing to work towards a common vision in terms of getting whatever the needs are of the CSO out there. And everybody's right. very willing and very open um, in the environment. And I think that that's one of the one of the key benefits to the space that we create with Data for Change is, is that it's really a truly collaborative experience. And, and I know that sometimes when you're in a studio environment or you're in an in-house environment, to be able to express ideas sometimes are met with challenge. But here we really make it a point and make it a very you know, explicit point that um, you know, that this is a safe space and this is a space for many ideas. and. It doesn't matter how crazy it is out there. Of course, safety is an issue, especially when dealing with particular topics in particular regions. Um, but generally, so far, we've had very few 
projects that have, let's say, well, actually, we haven't had any that has put anybody at risk. Well, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> Can you tell us a story of one of the one of the meetings that you've done so far? Yeah. So I think one of the most interesting projects that we've had so far with one of the CSO teams um, from Yemen, and basically they had a very robust data set of Yemenese perceptions, and they had a very unique design challenge in the fact that electricity was sparse. Internet, it relies on power, which is also sparse, and the country is fragmented by a civil conflict right now. And so they wanted to get this data out to other Yemenese people and also to local authorities so that they could better serve and help local people to try to make life continue as best as possible in this very uh, difficult time and period uh, in Yemen. So they came to the workshop with a basically a massive set of um, survey data from about, I believe, 4,000 respondents. And it was roughly 150 questions. And um, it was an equal split between men and women. So I would say that given the methodology that they've used, they have a very uh, robust 10-step methodology, even down to the questionnaire design, even pre-testing that to make sure that things are clear, that there's no misunderstanding of the questions. Or if there is misunderstanding, what caused that and does that derive a new question? So they came with this data set and they needed a way to get it out into Yemen. And the design team came up with a very, very fabulous uh, solution in terms of not only um, for the visualization of the data, uh, which I have to, there's another um, kind of design challenge is that 35% of the population in Yemen is uh, illiterate. And now that schools are closing, that you know, yeah. statistic is due to rise even more. So how do you also design data visualizations for people who can't read that right. on top of everything else? So that was yeah. also a very, very big factor. Um, so after the design team and the CSO representatives sat down, a couple hours they had hashed out that you know, there's still a large contingent of people who like to meet and discuss their daily lives every day and basically that people share a lot of files and news via Bluetooth on their phones. So the group came up with an idea of taking um, USB hubs or Raspberry Pi cards and basically turning them into little localized networks that people could connect to and distribute information that way. It can be run off a small solar panel. And basically there was a whole site that was designed with the data visualization and a curated set of questions from that with that were then also recorded and let's say described to someone who basically is illiterate so that they can still look at the visual and understand what's going on. Right. And with that website, basically they were able to also figure out a way of compressing audio, all of the data files and the code in HTML into a small package of, I believe it was something around five megabytes that could be then uploaded to these hubs that could then be distributed out into the field. And then people in field, local populations, local council leaders, local governors could go to these uh, data hub spots and download that website virtually on their phone and pass it around, but still be able to look and see what the needs of people are in their government, what's happening on a national level. Wow. That is, yeah. that's impressive. <laughs> so, 
So you mentioned that this this group brought in their own data, and I'm curious how you think about you know issues about data quality. Um, you know, we're always telling people, you know, make sure you understand your data. You read the dictionaries, you know, this and that. You explore it. So with five days and a group coming in with you know the survey data that they've collected, how do you think about dealing with data quality issues? So to get people up to speed, so I'm going to backtrack a little bit, So um, and then we'll get back to the question. Yeah. Um, wh- one of the things that we do do is pre-workshop is that we set up Slack channels, and the team basically meets uh. about two weeks prior to start looking at data and start gaining some insights on the data so that it's not a complete cold start. So they do mm-hmm. have a little bit of onboarding into the data sets and into the workshop experience prior. However, it's not until everybody's really sitting at the table that you can really start to fully understand and start defining key objectives and desired outcomes for projects and what the key messages are. Um, let me get back to your question about data quality. Um, with this particular group, and actually with most of the CSOs that we work with for the workshop, they generally have exceptionally high quality data because they have a lot of people in the field collecting data. And so one of the things actually that was another key component to this project in Yemen was is that we also created a survey creator for the CSO there that they could that this was part of the back end of the website that people can then go to the hubs and actually they can uh, put new surveys out into the field. Uh, the surveys can be answered at the hub via a local Wi-Fi, a basic Wi-Fi connection or a LAN connection. And uh, all the results are stored on that hub and are locked away so that they can't be tampered with. So that's right. another way for them to collect data in the field rather than having to send people into very precarious situations, which are now unfolding there. If we have major data issues, which so far, knock on wood, have been almost none, of course, like any other data viz project, you know, we try to find supplementary data that is part of the realm in which the CSO is operating and that they can then use. Because one of the other tracks while the creative teams are working during the workshop, CSOs also uh, receive training on data visualization skills, uh, on editorial skills, on basic data visualization, uh, design, language, but also the basics, the 101 of data viz um, tools such as raw and infogram to be able to produce um, data viz in their uh, work once they return back to their um their headquarters. Mm-hmm. And we're also giving them some training on methodologies and how to collect better data. And that is one of the bigger objectives that Data for Change would like to set up is to be able to provide a standard kit of data collection mm-hmm. or methodologies that can be followed so that should any of the CSO's data wind up, let's just say, on the floor of the United Nations for you know, this is a big goal on the floor yeah. of the United Nations for a peer review, that it is, that it is, you know, that it withstands that review. And I would right. say that a lot of the data sets that we've worked with so far um, would would hold up pretty well. It's, it's kind of amazing, really. Like, you, it's a whole toolkit for these smaller groups. So once you've provided them with a prototype for uh, a project, a website, a new data collection tool, you've provided them with some basic training in data visualization, data analytics, whatever it may be, then the event ends and they go on. What have you all found 
the groups need going forward? I mean, presumably they're coming to you because they don't have the skill sets that they need. So now after the event ends, how, how what has the experience been from these groups that have come to you for help? Well, so far we've continued support for them and we try to basically tap into our local networks there because the network now is rounding 150 plus database professionals around the world that we can then tap into those local database professionals in country to continue to help these groups and and to continue to help the CSOs um, with their further needs. We do still provide and we're still in contact with many of the CSOs and help them through situations and and provide further training for them. Um, they they do get a, a toolkit post workshop where they have continued access to Infogram, where they have continued access to Shorthand, and through the gracious sponsorship of a lot of places like Infogram and uh, Shorthand, that they allow access to continue to those tools. Right. One of the other things I noticed on the on the Data for Change website is a focus on on storytelling and, and data storytelling. And as you and I have talked about in the past, and as yeah. people who have looked at my site know, this is sort of a key interest for me of what do we mean by storytelling. And I can imagine, I can easily imagine what the sort of work that you are all doing that that engages with stories. But I'm curious how you all view what that phrase means and and what it means when you're working with some of these groups in these developing countries. So this is, this is of course a topic that's a hot debate. And I know that storytelling from my personal opinion is done very seldom and very thoroughly with data visualization. And I think that that really only happens at a granular level when you start really digging into the data and you pick a couple of data points that seem like there's something there behind it. And once you want to start packing what's behind that data point or what's behind that, what, yeah, whatever, whatever that data point is, that's when you start getting into the storytelling aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Of course, there are stories to tell and there are voices that come along with these data sets. But for example, if you're looking at a broad contextual view of a data set and you're presenting that, I don't necessarily think, I guess it all depends on the presentation and how it's delivered. But I think it's really that the, that the storytelling aspect comes at that granular level when you start figuring out the stories behind it and providing a platform for that. So it's, it's a little bit of general context or overview with specificity that's when you can start to kind of craft storytelling in data. I think maybe one of the better ways to look at it, at least for me, are data-driven stories, which aren't necessarily data stories, but you know, you're looking at a data set and there's something behind it and there's a general context or theme that goes with it. Um, you know, we have a tendency to call them data-driven advocacy campaigns because sometimes we look at the data, but the data doesn't necessarily take the front stage for that campaign, but inspires another type of action. Um, you know, with the, with the Yemen example, where the real innovation is, is how we get the data out there. The data is, of course, important and the visualization of it is important. And of course, with that 35% literacy rate, that's also important how you deal with that. But in terms of a data visualization story, I wouldn't necessarily call that. I would call it more of a platform that people can go to to get insight. Mm. Um, and so if we're really looking at 
data visualization at storytelling, I think probably one of the best examples would probably be the late Hans Rosling <laughs> and what he was doing because he was able to unpack a lot of information, but in such a way that it provided new perspectives, that it gave us new insights into things while digging into the data. And whether it be on a country level or whether it be on a more specific level like Dollar Street, it's, I think that those are more the types of things that I might consider to be data stories. Mm -hmm. And specifically within the data for change projects that come out in the prototypes, there are instances where there's elements of storytelling with data and there are data-driven stories, but I wouldn't say that all of the projects are that. Right. I mean, I think we we totally agree. We've talked about this. We're in the it, same. We're in the same. Yeah, we're in the same. Yeah. We're the same. <laughs> and, and you and you mentioned Rosling, which which I wanted to highlight, not just because of the way I think he did a great job of of really doing a good job of telling stories, but he has this or this book he published mm-hmm. after after he passed away, Factfulness, about how we sort of our perceptions about yes. uh, progress in the world are, are generally uh, oh. distorted or incorrect. And I'm curious when you are bringing people together. So you're bringing these experts from all over the world into developing countries like Yemen. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about, do you find that the people you are working with who are from outside Yemen or maybe even from outside the international mm-hmm. development area, do you find that they have misconceptions about the the culture or the politics or the economy or the work that you're doing in these countries? This is kind of one of the most interesting aspects of data for change is bringing together an international community, bringing together a local community to work on these projects. Because I think that you find that a lot of what's toted in mass media isn't well, obviously, isn't necessarily the, the facts on the ground. And there's these kind of aha moments, and they're not bad. And mm-hmm. it's not it's not judgmental in, in any way. But there's this, hey, you know what? We're actually, we're all people, and we're all after the same thing. We're all looking for similar uh, ways of living. We're all looking for similar ideas and going after very similar things. So let's just jump into it and do it together. But there's there's never there's never been a moment where there's been let's say any type of disrespect, but it's been more illuminating, I would say, mm-hmm. or, um, like someone just doesn't know about yeah, I mean, there's, 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 there's lots of cultural, uh, yeah. aspects that I'm also, uh, still learning. I mean, I'm also very new to this as well. And so that there's, you know, that's why it's very important to have local talent and also to work with the CSOs because simple things like color can have a huge impact. Uh, simple things such as, basic words that we would take for granted may have a completely different meaning in another context or like I said before, colors, even shapes. So it's very important to have those different perspectives sitting at the same table to make sure that we are sensitive, but we're also you know, producing these impactful uh, campaigns. Right, right. Well, on that hopeful note, which is great, I think that's that's I, I, I'm 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 excited about what you what you're all doing. So on that hopeful yeah. note, uh, let me thank you for coming on the show. Um, I'm really excited to see what you're what you're going to do over there and 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 the type of work and and projects that you work on. So, Michael, thanks a lot for for coming on the show. I, I appreciate it. 
Thank you so much. And one last little plug. There is a yeah. possibility there's where we're still in the works of it, but keep your eyes out on our social media uh, because we are looking uh, and it's still tentative to put together a data for change in South Africa, uh, hopefully in the spring of uh, 2019. Great. Great. Well, yeah. I will, I'll link to the Data for Change site and the Twitter feed and the social media stuff for those who are interested. Um, sign up, take a look, and hopefully more of us can get involved and, and travel out to uh, exotic locales and help out. Um, exotic for me, maybe not for other people, but exotic for me. All right. Very good. Well, thanks for coming thank you, thank on. You. Yeah, yeah, thank great. you so much. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone for tuning in this week. We talked about a lot of things, so there'll be a lot of links on this week's episode. Be sure you check out what's going on at Data for Change and, and see if you can get involved, especially if they're uh, doing workshops relatively close to you. Uh, it might be a great uh, opportunity to get involved. So until next time, this has been the Policy Viz podcast. Thanks so much for listening.